Are you looking for a new job? Are you hiring but can't find diverse, talented candidates? Then you're in luck because we just upgraded our job board and we're here to help you out. Head on over to revisionpath.com forward slash jobs where you can browse job listings, post your own jobs, and sign up for email updates when new job listings are posted. This week on the job board, Glean is looking for a product designer in Manhattan in New York City. MKG is looking for a talented and versatile senior 3D designer in either Brooklyn, New York or Los Angeles, California. Posting to our job board starts at just $99, way less than many other design job boards. And for an additional fee, you can have your listing advertised here on the podcast and reach tens of thousands of listeners. Make sure to head over to revisionpath.com forward slash jobs for more information on these listings and others. And while you're there, click on the talent tab at the top of the page and check out our new initiative with State of Black Design for companies and job seekers. It's called the 10th Collective. It's free to become a member and you'll get warm introductions to companies that are looking to hire. Get started with us and expand your job search today. Revisionpath.com forward slash jobs. You're listening to the Revision Path Podcast, a weekly showcase of the world's black graphic designers, web designers, and web developers. Through in-depth interviews, you'll learn about their work, their goals, and what inspires them as creative individuals. Here's your host, Maurice Cherry. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Revision Path. Thank you so much for tuning in. I'm your host, Maurice Cherry. Just want to remind you all again about the 10th Collective. You probably heard me talk about it for the past several weeks. One of the reasons I'm talking about it, aside from the fact that we're trying to get new members into the 10th Collective, is that tech and design companies have been laying off people left and right. I swear, every week, pretty much every day for the past few weeks, I've heard of some company laying people off. And so the 10th Collective is not why we started it because of these layoffs. We really started it because we want to help black designers looking for work to get paired up with companies that are looking to hire them. So if you're a black designer listening to this and you may have been affected by some of these recent layoffs and you're looking for your next opportunity, consider this a formal invitation to join the 10th Collective. It's a really great resource, whether you're looking for work or not. So if you have a job, then, you know, apply anyway, because what happens is you'll end up getting connected with companies that are interested in talking to you, and then you can decide whether or not you want to talk to them. You can hide your profile from certain companies, or you can just be anonymous altogether. Currently, we've got roughly about 30 people in the collective looking to really raise that number so we can get more folks matched up. So head on over to the 10th collective.com to join, or you can check out the link in the show notes. This episode of Revision Path is brought to you by Hover. Building your online brand has never been more important, and that begins with your domain name. Show the online community who you are and what you're passionate about with Hover. With over 400 plus domain extensions to choose from, including all the classics and fun niche extensions, Hover is the only domain provider I use and trust. So what are you waiting for? Go to hover.com forward slash revision path and get 10% off your first purchase. Now for this week's interview, I'm talking with Ajay Archer, a multidisciplinary design director and the founder of UnQ and UnQ Studio. Let's start the show. All right. So tell us who you are and what you do. My name is Ajay Archer. I am a designer and entrepreneur currently based in Trinidad. My work extends in a few different branches. One of them is in making typefaces. So I, I work on typeface design, but primarily with a focus on typeface design to support the cultures and spaces of the post-colonial slash new world um, and the global south. And I also am an entrepreneur in my home country of Trinidad, where I run a design company called UnQ, where we help small businesses sell online. And we also have a studio called the UnQ Studio, where we help other startups and institutions such as government bodies and large corporate entities build their own digital products to kind of move towards Trinidad's digital transformation. I believe your type design was how I first heard about you like years and years ago. How's the summer been going for you so far? 
in the type design world so or just in general just in general yeah just in general summer has been good for me i started off i mean i I think it would have been probably in the start of the american summer at facebook so i did a talk for meta meta's open arts team so i gave a talk as part of their visionary series and that was really good but i think that like that kind of kicked off my summer and then i um i also gave another talk at a conference called the io festival in minneapolis oh yeah so ago and those have been really good like i've been really enjoying this particular summer because i've been so kind of face down in dealing with unqueue stuff especially because trinidad was so locked down for as long as it was like this summer feels like the summer that i'm, I'm becoming an international person again oh nice so with yeah. that in mind like what's coming up for you for the next few months right now we have um at unqueue which is my startup at home we um we are working pretty hard on growing so we've just started working on connecting a lot of our local population with our local farmers. So we have a massive food import bill in Trinidad, which is wild because we're a tropical country that can grow fruits, you know, year round. But we have a massive challenge with people on the ground in Trinidad purchasing produce from people who are making it in Trinidad. And we have recently built in um, an addition to our software that allows local farmers to connect with the general public. So we are currently helping people sell vegetables and helping farmers direct more organic produce to their shoppers and that for me has been my hugest kick like it's not as great as like you know writing a massive python script or anything but i think that i've been really appreciating recently especially with unqueue how much technology can help people on the ground so that's been what i've been mostly excited about i've been working on that and i've been working on a new typeface project with darden studio oh nice can you talk about sort of that uh that typeface project Sure. I I recently, oh my God, it's not recent anymore. Is it? A few years ago, I started working on a typeface that was based on and inspired by the writing styles that seemed to be kind of pervasive across post-colonial spaces. So there was this kind of energy that sign painting in post-colonial spaces came with that I was trying to see if I could capture into a typeface. And when I say post-colonial spaces, I'm not just talking about the Caribbean, but I'm also talking about post-colonial spaces like Ghana and Nigeria and India. And the kind of really ferocious energy that a lot of those sign painting designs have come with have been really inspiring to me for a lot of years. Like I've been obsessed with sign painting in Trinidad and then beyond Trinidad for a lot of my life. And I think that the, the project that I'm working on with Darden Studio right now is trying to distill that hand-painted sign energy into something that we could use for text, which has been a really interesting, challenging, but also really, um, an interesting challenge, but also really fulfilling. I've been really enjoying it. I'm working with Darden Studios designer, Evan Sorkin, mm-hmm. on creating it, but it's been really nice. It's also, frankly, nice to be building work for a studio that was founded by a Black typeface designer, of whom there are so few. That's true. That's true. I mean, I know that you're kind of known as as Trinidad's first typeface designer. Yeah, I mean, that's like, I'm not even sure that I'm, I think that there was a typeface that was designed before me in Trinidad. I think that what I meant was that I am Trinidad's first typeface designer who is doing it for a living. But I think that even the idea of being the first for me is a lot less important than it is the idea of being somebody who is making things that are culturally specific. Yeah. I do think that there is a, there is a distance between who's making the work and who's the work for. Mm-hmm. And I think that who's the work for is always a more interesting question, but who's making the work tends to be the question we ask. Yeah. Which is something that like, I'm navigating because I think that as a black person who is making type in the world, there is, I feel like that's, yes, that's a momentous occasion because up to 20 years ago, black people were not making type. But yeah. I also think that the reality is that it's far more about for whom the type that I'm making is than it is what I look like. Because to be frank, if there were a white man who were making typefaces that was inspired by post-colonial creativity, I would be as excited. Hmm. But I do think that that's also because a lot of the work that I'm making right now, like I am hoping that it does well commercially, but it's not that it's, it's not that it's not for commercial consumption, but for example, with the typeface that we're, that we're working on at Darden Studio, that typeface has a language support that is relatively rare among the type world. So it supports every single African tribal language in Latin, which is a rarity. But for me, it was it was a little bit weird or inappropriate to be developing a typeface that was inspired by these spaces 
and not let that typeface support the languages of the people by whom it was inspired. I had Trey Seals on the show. Goodness, that was years. I think that might have been like 2017, 2018 before his typeface design really started blowing up. And like, I see his typefaces everywhere. And it's interesting that you say like who it's for, because granted, like there's a historical context in which Trey kind of bases all of his designs, but I've seen them used in movie trailers, in yogurt commercials. I've seen them used everywhere. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> I think that Trey's work is really important because, and I mean, I, I'm saying this as a non-American, right? So I don't have the same relationship that Americans may have even to oppression. But I do think that Trey's work is, it's like, I feel like you can make work that is really on the pulse of the moment that you're in. Mm-hmm. And his work feels really responsive to the moments that we're living through. And I feel like there's a particular beauty to that, for sure. Yeah, Totally. Let's talk about Uncue, which uh, you started a little over two years ago. Tell me about that. Well, I had just come back home from, I think, maybe New York. And I had kind of, in a way, closed my design studio. So I had a design studio for about 10 years in Trinidad. And we were doing a lot of work in the web. We were doing a lot of work in the branding space. But it wasn't that I didn't love that work, but it was that I loved making type a lot more. And I was starting to phase that kind of phasing branding and web work out of my career and basically trending toward being a full-time typeface designer. But when COVID hit in New York, I had just left New York and then I came to Trinidad. And when I was in Trinidad, because we used to have the studio that provided design services, we ended up in this place where a lot of my old clients would call and say, hey, Jay, are you still working? We need a website. We need to sell stuff online. We can't keep the business open we can't have people in the store or whatever and this was like a massive influx for me and there was this decision that i had to make of okay well i can take on this business and it'll be probably good money or whatever but it's not necessarily scalable and also there was this problem that was really kind of clear to me because i grew up as a very i would say proudly working class person from a working class background and the amount of money that it would have taken people to get online in that time would have been prohibitive to the working class and i wanted to be part of making something that can help people who didn't have the how much of a thousands of dollars it was going to cost to hire us i wanted to give them the same ability to get online do business sell their stuff as my other clients who would have been supporting my career over however long and i felt like the pandemic was a good opportunity so i i was working then with my studio's lead developer his name is andal and i called andal one evening and i was like andal do you want to make an app and he thought I was joking. And three months later, we released Uncue's first vision to the App Store. And since then, it's been something that has changed a lot about how I see the value of the work that I'm making. But it's also something that I'm really quite proud of because in a space with relatively low tech adoption, in which, you know, it's like a big circumstance in Trinidad that we don't have a huge amount of trust in technology. So we do have one of the highest mobile penetrations probably globally, like relatively. So in the Americas, we have like 110% mobile penetration. In Trinidad, we have 142. So we're a very online, very mobile society. But that transition of doing business digitally didn't really happen until we got forced into it by the pandemic. Mm-hmm. And something that I've been really happy about is being able to be part of that transition and part of that change. So a lot of the work that I'm looking at with NQ is not just about helping people sell things online, but there's this kind of movement of digital transformation that's happening throughout the Caribbean. Yes, triggered by COVID, but also very necessary to help meet our sustainable development goals, necessary to reduce food import bills, etc. And as soon as we or I was able to realize, wow, we are building this thing, and not only is it, it's a cool product to work on, sure. And I think that there is a there aren't product development studios in the Caribbean. So it's not like, I think that a lot of the methodologies that we would have been importing, maybe even from Silicon Valley, we had to kind of retrofit to work in our space, et cetera. So it was really exciting. But I think that for me, when UnQ got kicked off, I started it as this thing that I thought would be able to help some people. And now I think that there's this larger vision around being able to guide the direction of the Caribbean, because a lot of technology in the Caribbean isn't made here. A lot of it is made, for example, in Russia or in China. And, you know, angel investors bring software into the country. And 
try to retrofit it to the cultures. And we are the only people that are making the software that we're using on the ground. And there's a particular magic to that because we are able to be responsive, but we're also able to develop solutions that are tailored to our experiences. Like we have 80% cash dependency in our country where 80% of the transactions happen in cash. And that's not going to change anytime soon. Like our banks aren't going to facilitate that. So we, for example, had to build an e-commerce software that was also able to facilitate cash payments. But things like that have been really, really exciting. And I think that MQ has probably been one of the most fulfilling professional experiences of my life. But it's also been something that, you know, in a material way, we're able to help 200 plus vendors. We've connected them with 20,000 plus shoppers. And I mean, it's a small country. So that's like, those are actually important numbers. But, um, but I think that for us, and I say us now because NQ is way more than just me, but for us, NQ has been this very transformative project that we've all worked on and discovered a lot more value than we initially wanted, well, initially were expecting to. I mean, and it sounds like it really came about at a very opportune time. I mean, you have kind of this quote-unquote perfect storm of a pandemic and things getting locked down and people not being able to have that regular access to places that they usually had. And now you've got this app that now kind of facilitates a lot of that. 100%. Yeah. That was really huge for us because like that look in people's eyes of, I didn't know we could do this. I feel it's partly part of that mentality has a lot to do with being from a traditionally disadvantaged post-colonial space like the Caribbean and not really not seeing a potential for yourself that is better. Mm -hmm. And I think that what our work has been able to do is to show people, Hey, you deserve technology. You know, like this idea of design and technology have been classically relegated to large business in the Caribbean. And what I have been able or wanted to be able to do is to create something that could be democratizing and something that could be accessible across the board. So our, I mean, at Anti-Studio, our, our tagline or motto or kind of driving principle is design and technology for everybody. But that for everybody really is our big key thing because the I, the amount of change that we can make in one particular sliver of our society may be a lot, but the reality is that if all I'm doing is helping rich people get richer, I probably would just go to work at Apple or something. Fair enough. That makes sense. So let's talk about UnQ Studio because that is something different from the app itself, right? Yeah. So I started UnQ two years or two years plus ago. And something that really stood out to us maybe about, I would say, less than a year ago was the fact that we had won a bunch of awards. So that's one thing. So we've won, we've won awards every year for design and user experience since we've launched. So we've won a total of five Addy Awards, which are the American Advertising Association Awards. We've won five of those over the past two years. Hmm. And the reason that we've won them is largely because, you know, we've been making good design. But I think that something that we had to acknowledge is that we are one of the few providers that are able to do this in the space that we're in, but we're also the only people that are building the products that we design as well. So I saw it as an opportunity for us to not just, yes, you know, diversify how we, you know, build income at the company, but I also saw it as a real need because this idea of design and tech being for everybody and this idea of design, I feel like it's almost like technology should be a fundamental right just like the ability to like write or access the water. Mm-hmm. And I feel like companies like UnQ Studio are there to help facilitate that because there needs to be somebody between the general public and business interests that can convert business interests and their objectives into something that the public wants. And I think that I started the UnQ Studio so that we could address that, but also so that we can make our contribution to the Caribbean technology sector and industry because we have so much in our tech world and industry that is really good businessmen like a lot of pitch decks hella pitch decks Mm -hmm. but the reality is that when it comes to like materials substances products getting made products getting put into the world we actually don't have a huge legacy of doing that well and i wanted to kind of create a company that could change that narrative among people like in power in the Caribbean, but also on the ground. And I do think that it has to do with with a lot of post-colonial self-hate. But I do think that there is this belief that we can't do things properly on our own. So it has to get imported if it's good. And I'm trying to make this case that actually it can be just as good as the imported stuff, if not better, if you make it here. Yeah. Walk me through like what a typical day is like, because I mean, it sounds like a lot to balance between the app work and the studio. It's a lot, yeah. But I mean, if 
fortunately they are they have a synergistic relationship or they can because it's it's the same teams so the app for us is our social impact project and yes we do work with larger businesses to help facilitate their e-commerce but a large like the large part of our business is this idea of small small entrepreneurs and say small in terms of the volume of money that they're making but small businesses moving through and helping their businesses grow but the studio is doing that but for other businesses essentially so i think that in a day typically i would i try to wake up and start work by 8 9 and i would say i spend about let's say 40% of my day on q the app and then another 40% of my day on the anki studio and then another 20% of my day working on type stuff but you know the anki app and the anki studio work are really synergistic because a lot of the methodologies that we developed at the studio are the things that we use to run the app but also a lot of the success that we've we've been able to have professionally is because of how well the app has done and also because we've spent so much time and money building this app we also now have a lot of software infrastructure that other startups are using so a lot of the work that we're doing now is in diversifying the kind of work that we're doing so a lot of my days are half entrepreneur where i'm writing a pitch deck for somebody and then i stop doing that and i'm reviewing someone's design and then i stop doing that and i'm reviewing someone's performance for example mm-hmm. but um i think that in a way i feel more comfortable doing as much as i can than i would feel like i'm not doing enough which is like probably something to talk about with my therapist but um, <laughs> but, I, but like but for me like it's that is a really huge thing like i think that i have spent a lot of time wanting my work to be meaningful and purpose driven mm-hmm. and the unqu studio and the unqu app have given me that capacity to do it here because i do think that the work that i do in typography and in language support especially since a lot of the work that i'm doing is for people who have classically been ignored by the type world a lot of that work is really important but they are all kind of along the same vein of i want to use the abilities that i have to make an effect a positive change in the world yeah it sounds like that's been sort of a a new discovery for you would that be accurate th- to say i think so yeah i think that when i got into type and maybe it was just like i had finally become like a real adult or something but i do think that there was this realization that i had because like getting into type can be a really really um fun experience maybe if you're not black but i think that like, <laughs> like i think that like 10 minutes in when you're black you start realizing a oh, whole up firstly nobody here looks like me secondly uh-huh. every single language that i am being taught to value and all of the all of the little accents that i'm taught to like pay super close attention to and respect everybody's language all the language respect that are being taught is about european languages mm-hmm. right so they they'll tell me hey you need to make sure like if you use if you're supporting polish you need to have like polish diacritics or maybe you should just lean on the side of drawing a diacritics to support polish but it's like okay i get it i get it i get it but who's going to be supporting twi or fante right and the reality is that those those languages aren't thought of and it's not because of their population sizes is just because the people who are making type are from Europe and and I think for as unfortunate as it is it's understandable to be able to see why you won't want to look past these spaces that you're in when you're yeah. making the work that you're making but I do think that if I'm not from these spaces that you're in and I can see a gap then I can either rail against the system and get mad at you for not doing something about it which I have done to relatively negligible effect or <laughs> I can or I can choose to acknowledge that hey your limitations are around how much you can see in the world and your whiteness your privilege insulates you from having to see a certain side of the world that may not be as comfortable mm-hmm. to you but the reality is that i don't have a choice like people in africa look like me how could i be making type and not supporting their languages right it's like really basic stuff you know and in the same way like i grew up really working class people like me after the pandemic were mostly unable to make a living like uh, like the service industries were shut down hospitality industries were shut down there were a lot of people who looked like me that couldn't do anything but a lot of them probably had the little side hustle that they could have advanced to a full time hustle if they had the right infrastructure so for me it was like well let's see if we can make the infrastructure but it's really about what can i do and if i can do it i should do it and i'll figure out how i'll get paid for it like getting paid has been always like a thing that i think about secondly but fortunately i've always made that work but i think that for me it's um i think maybe for the past few years a lot of the work that i've been making has been around not necessarily a settlement or writing of any wrong mm-hmm. but i do think that the work is about seeing where i can fill a gap and and placing my energy there instead of wherever else because 
I don't not acknowledge that I could probably go make type for a large company somewhere. Or I also don't acknowledge that I could spend most of my type design work building brands, for example. But I do think that if we think about what people need in the type world right now, it's probably greater accessibility. Africa is one of the most exploding economies in the world. In 10 years, it's actually going to be really necessary that you support continental African languages. And while that opportunity is there, I also would be doing the work if that wasn't the case. Because I feel like there is a certain amount of accessibility that people will get written out of in the design canon just because of how white it is. You know, even as you say that, that reminds me of some conversations I've had over the years on Revision Path with other type designers. I think one of the first type designers I had on was episode 24, uh, was this young guy named Kevin Karanja out of Nairobi, who had designed a typeface called Charvet. I don't know if he kept it up. I remember when he designed it, I remember he got a good bit of like international news for it. I don't right. recall if he had kept it up because he really was... I mean, one, when I was talking to him, he was like 21. He was like, I was just kind of messing around and made this typeface. And it wasn't like, it wasn't really, I guess, for a utility. He kind of just did it to see if he could do it. But also, I think he was leaning more into like doing fine art. So I don't know if Kevin is still even doing typeface design. I I haven't actually heard of him. Like you said, episode 24. Yeah. I have to check that out. Yeah. The other person, and I haven't had him on the show yet. I would love to, but. It's got me thinking about the work of Saki Mafundikwa uh, out of Zimbabwe. Saki is, Saki is a huge influence, but yeah. Yeah, his book, African Alphabets, which took me forever to try to find, um, yeah, is is such... Book. It is, it's out because it's out of print and everything, but it's such a yeah. great work in terms of like just the anthropological, like just meaning of like showing what African alphabets are and how different that is from what we would know as like Roman alphabets or something. Yeah, one of my first type design projects and the project that I gave my TED talk on was a Surinamese language that he had actually documented in his book. And if he hadn't documented that, I wouldn't have found it. Yeah. So you kind of talked a little bit about growing up. Tell me more about kind of your origin story. Like you were born and raised in Trinidad? Yeah, I was born in Trinidad. I grew up with my dad alone. And um, I think I had like a relatively traditional growing up experience, which is that my, my, my father wanted me to be something and not an artist. <laughs> and, um, <laughs> and what that means is that I think I was quite good at all of these things in school, but I was just really unfulfilled. So I was a, I was a good student, but like a bad teenager, if that makes any sense. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think that by the time I was ready to graduate out of, you know, what Americans would call high school, by that time I was, I was so determined to do my own thing that I had kind of, I already decided this is going to be tough, but I'll do it. When I got out of school, I had kind of walked away from our engineering path that I was focusing on. And I decided to be a bartender. And while I was a bartender, I was also making software. I had learned a few programming languages in school. And my first job was actually as a software developer. And while I was making software, I kind of learned, you know, I like making these layouts for these interfaces a lot. <laughs> and... Uh, I started getting into interface design and this would have been old school. This is like pre cloud, pre material. Mm-hmm. And I realized I quite liked that. And then I realized, Oh wow, this, like I was working on a website one day and it needed a logo. And I just told the client, you know, like, let me just take a stab at that for you buds. And I did. And as soon as it was done, I was like, Oh my fucking God, I love this shit. And <laughs> I decided to be a graphic designer essentially. So I got out of software and became a graphic designer and, I think that I basically got into software, became a graphic designer, and was freelancing for a couple of years, and then decided to go to school at the University of Toronto Tobago because I wanted to get better. And I did okay slash great in school, but I was living with uh, parents who just didn't understand a lot around why anybody would want to do design, which he would call art. And in his head, it's like, I don't want my child to be an artist. They starve. So it was a relatively unsupportive environment at home then. And during that, I decided, well, I want to be a designer and I don't want to have to quit studying design. So I'm just going to move out. And I moved out and studying and living on my own was a difficult thing to navigate. So I just decided I would just start working. And I I was always working while I was in school just because I I had a culture of getting clad with people. Mm -hmm. And so, I mean, going to the University of Trinidad and you're studying and working at the same time, like... Did you end up finishing up or no? I didn't graduate out of UTT, no. I, um, I got into the program and dropped out almost at the end twice. 
twice. And yeah, the first time was really just because I, I didn't have a choice. And then the second time was because like I went to school to finish my my associates and my lecturer at the time was like, hey, Jay, happy you want to be in school. Love that for you. But <laughs> you're kind of working toward where you already are. Not necessarily in terms of my skill, but in terms of professionally. And a lot of these schools in Trinidad are there to help you get a job far less than they are to like actually educate. And I think that it just felt like a right time for me to kind of get out on my own. And I started working at an agency after which I was fired. For, <laughs> I was fired from that agency a couple of months after. But yeah, that was that was where I got my start. I basically um that was when I decided I was really gonna do this for the rest of my life. Was when I when I dropped out of school the second time, I decided, well, like I could do a bunch of things. I could probably, you know, go learn how to do math or something. But I think that for me it was way more important than I um at the time that I do something that was kind of passion driven and all of the things around my life had kind of coalesced around me doing design for a living. And it was the first time that I did something. And yes, it paid my bills, but it was also the first time that I was able to do something and look at the effects of it and look at the effects that it had on other people and be like, this is a good thing that I'm doing. Mm. And I feel like that feeling has been, in a way, like what I've been chasing or what I've, but like chasing is the wrong thing because like, it implies more satisfaction than there is. But, um, <laughs> but I do think that what I've been doing is working toward, working, working in pursuit of my understanding of the fact that design can actually positively affect people's lives. And if you know that it can, then let it. And the only way to let it is to do the design. Yeah. And I would say to your point, you know, if you were already working, I mean, why stay in school? And I'm not saying this for people listening as like, you should drop out, but yeah, no, stay school kids. Ba- yeah, <laughs> but based on the environment that you said you were in, if you were already kind of working, it's like, what is the degree really helping you for at this point? Exactly. You're already making a yeah. living. That was it. Like I was paying my rent, but I was paying my rent and barely sleeping because I was like have a career where like I'm on the laptop and I'm building identities, and then I'm going to school and I'm having to like cut out pay stubs. Right. <laughs> so, it was just, like weird. It was like dissonant. It was like I feel like I'm getting prepared for the thing I'm doing. You know? Yeah. So what was your early career like? Uh, you mentioned this agency. Was that Above Group that you were working at? It wasn't. It was not Above Group at first. Above Group was my dream agency. I applied to work at Above Group like six times. Oh, wow. <laughs> uh, yeah. They, they will admit, like for me, being in the Caribbean and being a lover of design and seeing that, seeing the work that they put out for me was massively influential because Above Group was, it was founded by these two men, Alex Smales and Gareth Jenkins. Both who were Trinidad, well, both had Trinidadian roots, but weren't necessarily squarely based in Trinidad, but they were in Trinidad during the above group era. And something that really stood out to me was this, I mean, I don't like this term, but it's the best one that I have right now, but this kind of internationalized approach to making design, which felt like it could stand up anywhere in the world. And for me, I was so inspired by that kind of work that I told myself, I'm gonna either make work like this, or I'm gonna like I'm gonna make work like this for a company, or I'm gonna make work like this on my own, or I'm gonna starve to death. But I'm not <laughs> like I'm not doing bullshit. You know what I mean? And I think that after school, a lot of the work was struggling, but struggling not necessarily because of any reason other than not wanting to produce what felt to me like the kind of rote mechanicalized output that. People are like, I think in Trinidad, we have a culture of advertising is our big thing. So that's what designers make most of their money doing. But the advertising culture in Trinidad has kind of really flattened expression. And I think that for me, looking at that kind of work was always really demoralizing. So I was telling myself I don't want to work for these people while also needed to make a living. So my employment history has been shaky at best. I think I maybe was employed for my longest stint. My longest job lasted like eight months. Mm-hmm. Everything else was like freelance in the middle of that. But I worked at a few agencies in Trinidad and I was, I think I would say that like unhappy is a a good way to describe how I felt. Mm-hmm. Just because I, unhappy, not necessarily because of the boss. I mean, the bosses were assholes, but bosses could be assholes everywhere. But it was more so, I'm, I know that I'm not doing what I want to do. You know what I mean? Like I'm, yeah. I'm getting up, I'm making this artwork for these people, but I know that at the end of the day, this isn't how I want to, like, I don't want to be known for this. I don't want this to be what I'm carrying through in the future. So mm-hmm. it was always in the back of my head. And then after many attempts, I got a, I actually just got a job offer from in, from Above Group. And Above Group was the first time that I was able to work as part of a team and make the kind of work that I wanted to make. 
and I worked at Above Group for, I would say, maybe a year or a little bit less than a year. But it was the most formative job experience that I had had because here I was on a team of people attempting to make world-class work with world-class, in my opinion, intentions and objectives. And eventually the company, like design as a business in Trinidad is hard to do and it's hard to make sustainable. And at some point in time, they had to realize that, hey, this isn't going to work. And they had to shutter their doors. And when Above Group closed down, for me, it was really demoralizing because, yeah, I know I could be like, I could have my own freelance career and stuff like that. But I think that what I learned from Above Group is one, how much you can do with people as opposed to just yourself. But also I kind of learned how much I enjoyed being part of a thing. And it's only now that I'm able to look at the Unki Studio and kind of reflect on how much of the Unki Studio experience that I'm having, I took away from Above Group. Hmm. I know exactly what you mean about like working at a place and feeling like you know that you're, and maybe I'm, I'm saying this wrong, but like you kind of feel like the work that you can do is better than this. Like I'm better than this place in terms yeah, of like exactly. the kind of work that you know that you can do, but you're still like stuck in this. Like, I know what you mean. I know exactly what you mean. Yeah. And I, I feel like it's also like, and I, I don't say from a place of ego either. It's like, it's all, it's almost from a place of desperate frustration. It's like, guys why don't we care about our clients you know, yeah like, you know like those kinds of things that like those were always questions that remained so unanswered that like it was hard to feel comfortable in a space where i shouldn't feel more concerned about my clients than my boss did you know what yeah. i mean and it felt like a lot of the time the work was this act of compromise another act of compromise because you know we have to get it out or because the client is on a deadline it's always like the compromise comes from well, we don't want to have another conversation with our client. Mm. And I was always in my head like, well, okay, clients, clients actually hire us to be the experts. Like they're hiring us because they need somebody to tell them when their fanciful ideas might not work. And I think that the culture that we've had in Trinidad around business in general and around the customer is always right, quote unquote, just didn't allow for that kind of thinking. So when I was at Above Group, it was the first time that I heard my boss say, yeah, I told that client they could go fuck themselves, dude. They asked us to do some bullshit. Yeah. And, um, and for me, that was huge because I didn't even know we had that kind of power in Trinidad. You know, I knew we had that power elsewhere and it was nice to like mm-hmm. look at designers elsewhere. But at home, it was really, it was wild for me to see that. So now even at the studio, like we are probably one of the few studios that tells clients, hey, we're not sure that your business model is really aligned to the kind of work that we're trying to make. Yeah. It's a more gentle way of saying that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They may have not been able to, you know? Yeah. I know for me, I, I mean, I'm not going to lie. There was some ego in it. Like, I was working at AT&T. I was essentially a production designer, just kind of working on an assembly line with a team of other designers, just cranking out these boring websites for small businesses. And I just knew that I was better than this. I was like, I can do better than this. And it sort of pained me how the other designers who I worked with, a lot of them who happened to be black designers were just sort of okay with this very sort of, to me, it felt like just this boring pedestrian station in life i'm like you like this you like you like these 15 minute lunch breaks and then we have to go back to work for six (laughs) hours like don't you want better for yourself than this like and for me for me it was a hundred percent ego i get what you're saying about kind of you know especially with a with an agency you would think that agencies would hopefully be more i guess appreciative of clients and maybe i mean it sounds like this was kind of your first like agency type experience so maybe that's kind of why it was so jarring well, I've had a few agency experience, and I think that one of the realities in Trinidad is that we have what you would call like franchised ad agencies. So a local business interest would get into a partnership with, let's say, uh, Saatchi and Saatchi, mm-hmm. and they would bring a Saatchi and Saatchi to Trinidad. But the only parts of the Saatchi and Saatchi brand that they're using are the name. So there's nothing that's going to be reflected in terms of like the work ethos or the creativity or anything like that. And that industry of like design being production is way more, and I think maybe just how they built the industry in Trinidad. I think it's way more about getting the work done so that we can get a new client in than it is about making work that gets us our next client. Mm. So a lot of these agencies have 10-year, 15-year relationships with clients. And yes, they're making underwhelming work every year, but they're making underwhelming work at a at a understandable and expected budget. So it's yeah. not going to be a huge problem for the client. And I think that um, 
I was always really wary of ending up in that trap because I felt like the reason that those companies were successful is that same kind of post-colonial shame of where you're from. So we'll work with Asachi and Sachi because they can guarantee that it won't be shit because it says Sachi and Sachi in their name. Okay. I yeah, see what you're but saying. Yeah. But that doesn't necessarily mean that the work is going to be good. It just means that there's an implied client confidence. And I think that I knew that, I mean, I in Trinidad, like we may have, we may have like white people are a minority here, but they're still the powerful group. So like I was never under this illusion that like I could start my own company and just run it on the name of it. You know, it would have to be about the work. Yeah. I mean, it kind of sounds like you've always done your own thing, whether it's on Q, whether it's your earlier entrepreneurial ventures that you kind of touched on, like, for you, what have been some of the pros and cons of working like this? Yes, I have done my own thing, um, for better or worse. But I think that as far as pros, I can really settle on the, on the biggest pro being this idea of working on what you want to work on is huge because you, if you can work on what you want to work on and you can get paid doing it and you can get paid enough to pay your bills and like buy some Prosecco on the weekend. In my world, that's the literal best your life can be, right? So for me, the pros are, my biggest pro is that I get to live a purpose-driven life. And that doesn't mean that my work is my life, but that does mean that if I am going to be spending eight to 10 hours a day doing something, that it doesn't feel like I'm just doing something to help someone else achieve some random goal around the money. So in terms of like, I think that I can make a way bigger impact doing things by myself. The cons are the obvious cons. Financial security, huge, fucking terrible. Like until recently, like now I'm fine. Until recently, it was tricky. I think also in the spaces that I live in, there is a particular challenge with going on your own when you look like I do, even though most of the people from Trinidad are black or of East Indian descent. I think that the challenge comes with a believability. So I walk into the room, I have free-form dreadlocks. I don't wear socks. I walk into the room and I'm like, hey guys, this is the design. And while I'm saying that, I know I need to fight against all of the perceptions that are coming with me in the room. Yeah. And in a way, the career that I was able to establish for myself in the States was the thing that helped me to kind of get past that here. Because when I tell people, oh, Google is one of my clients, there's a lot of shit that gets smoothed over. You know what I mean? <laughs> there's a lot of skepticism that leaves the room. They're like, oh, okay, cool. We thought you were a fraud because of the hair. But you said Google, so it's fine. And I think that for me, like the biggest, one of the biggest cons is that idea of, for me, and I mean, I'm saying specifically, if you are a, a sole trader, black entrepreneur, doing the things that I do in Trinidad, one of the cons is definitely going to be walking around and through that pervasive doubt that your potential clients and payers will have of you just because they are in a way programmed to doubt you and to doubt your capacity to do things. I think that that's one of the hugest challenges. One of the hugest challenges is just having the best product in the room, but screaming, please, somebody listen to me, you know, and just like in this invisibility, just because of where I'm from and what I look like. That again, I'm being really clear about is way less now than it was back then. But I think that, you know, you're a young black boy in the Caribbean and you want to start a design business. One of your biggest challenges is going to be credibility. And how do you get people convinced of your talent? Because it's not going to be on how good your layouts are. Yeah. It's going to be about something else. Woo, I feel that. I mean, that respectability politics kind of thing is so pervasive. I mean, it's something that I've had to deal with also. I mean, I'm a, big dark-skinned black dude with an afro from the south right <laughs> like i walk into most places you know especially with some of the places that i've spoken at and some of the places i've done work for and everything and i know how unassuming i come off and mm-hmm. i sort of play into that a little bit like i'm not a like i went to, to morehouse college and so morehouse has its own sort of reputation of like suit and tie and you're this well-read well-traveled person blah 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 all this kind of stuff that i sort of actively buck against like i'm not a suit and tie wearing kind of person at all and so i come up in most spaces and i tend to be pretty unassuming and like i sort of play into that a little bit because i like people to kind of be surprised like oh wow you know but i know what you mean about sort of having to fight against that because oftentimes those perceptions will come from people who look just like you yeah, it's mostly, to be honest, like most of the middle management is people that look like me and middle management is who I need to get through. But 
I think that a lot of the people who look like me are really wanting to hire and make connections and relationships with a white man with an accent. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I am not like, I don't provide them the opportunity for growth that they're looking for because you can't grow unless you have connections with white businessmen. Ooh, man, that's so get heavy. <laughs> no, no, to. that's, that's real. That's real. That's real. I want to shift a little bit and talk kind of more a little bit about your, your type design work. We touched on a little bit earlier, but in 2017, you were part of the Type at Cooper design program. Like, tell me how that experience was. It was well, right? Because, like, I didn't know I was going to get in. And I sent my application in and I got in. And then I had to take a loan because I didn't know I was going to pay for it. And I got in. And I remember really clearly, I'm saying all of this because I remember on my first day, I got into class and I got in there and there were like three white kids. And I Mm -hmm. got into the class and none of them said anything to me. And then another white kid came into the class and then a couple Asian kids came into the class. And at some point in time, we were getting close to nine o'clock and I had to acknowledge, okay, it's not going to be another black people here. (laughs) And that's fine. (laughs) Like, that's okay. Don't trip out. It's fine. You're in a place where black people are minority. That's okay. Right. And then my professor at the time, whose name is Hannes Famera, one of my biggest influences as a designer, came into the room and he looked at me and I knew he looked at me with this look of, huh, all right. Mm-hmm. I looked at him with the same look of, okay, this is what we're going to do, huh? And for me, a lot of it was on one hand being in a, in a classroom of people who were from a space, and I'm saying a space, not necessarily America, but they're all from what I would say larger, more cosmopolitan spaces that actually have some history around type design or some understanding around type design or some kind of typographic history. Yeah. And here I am from the Caribbean where we don't have any of that. And I'm like, I think that for me, my type of Cooper journey academically was a struggle because I just wasn't as quote unquote good as a lot of my peers, but I was a hard worker. So moving through the program for me was really fulfilling because I mean, I would basically go to class, I'd spend 12 hours a day at the Cooper Union, and then I would go to my shitty Brooklyn Airbnb and spend three hours drawing again. And I think that one of the things that I had to leave with was I kept waiting for the experience that would help me validate my blackness inside of all of that. And that never happened. And I had to acknowledge that the reason that it didn't happen and wasn't going to happen was because... I was getting ready to work in a space where there weren't any other black people because it was only when I was at the Cooper Union and I asked, wait, where the fuck, where the black, where the black guys at? Mm-hmm. Where the black women? Like, where's, where's somebody black at? And they had to be like, okay, sorry to break this to you, but we have one guy. <laughs> Josh Darden. That's it. That's, that's the whole type industry black people is Josh Darden. Mm-hmm. And I don't know how much you know about Josh, but he's a massive recluse. So, Yes. While I was at Type of Cooper, I'm emailing Josh, and Josh is like, obviously not fucking replying to my email. <laughs> and I'm like, I'm like, only laughing because I have tried to get Josh on the show for a while, yeah, and I him. think his one of his white business partners stepped in and like put, like just put the stop sign down, like stop messaging us, and I was like, okay, yeah, that that sounds about right. Like, I mean, to all of their credit, that's. That's Josh's instruction and Josh's desire. But um, but Dada Studio is currently now run by a white woman. Her name is Joyce. I mean, great. She's one of Josh's best friends. Mm-hmm. But um That's the person who told me that. Probably, yeah. She she told me the same thing. Um, <laughs> like, we're friends now. I love her. So I could say that. Like I emailed and I was like, hey, with so much milk in my fucking eyes, like, hey, um, I'm, 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 I'm really hoping I can get to be Dosh Dosh. She's like, listen, she's not seeing anyone. Good luck. She's like, good luck with Typer Cooper. That's it. But yeah, no, we're, we're good friends now. Um, and, you know, I'm fortunately publishing with them. But yeah, a lot of the experience for me was jarring because I had to acknowledge where Black people were in the type design spectrum. But I also had to acknowledge, you know, that kind of gentle erasure of your experiences that can happen when you're in white-dominated spaces? Mm-hmm. Like, it is not an active thing. It isn't like, there's no malice. But there's a just a kind of a casual not understanding, not relating to your circumstances that can feel really targeted after enough time that was how i would probably summarize my experience i would summarize my experience as one that was really fulfilling in terms of how much i got to learn but one that was also in a way a little traumatizing in terms of how much i learned 
about the rest of it. So not the drawing part, not the Python part, not the understanding white space part, but just the cultural implication and who's making type and who's making type for whom and where did type come from? Type, the whole like type design is the thing that facilitated commerce in the 15th, 16th, 17th century. That means slavery. You know what I mean? Yeah. And, and like, so I think about that and I'm like, it's like, okay, I'm also learning type in the Dutch fashion from people who learned Dutch style type design, which would have also been exploding in terms of its theoretical output as an offshoot of the Dutch benefit from slavery. Because I think that one of the greatest markers of a society's progress is if they started drawing type or not. Mm-hmm. You can tell a society's appetite for conquest when they start printing their own letters. Because you need to print your own letters to take over a space. And I feel like those things are the things that really... I think I could have learned a lot about drawing type on the internet, but I could never have learned about type's place in the world and cultural context if I didn't go to a school for it, because part of the curriculum was also learning about type's history. So there was a lecturer called Sacha Tochilovsky, and he was exceptional in terms of his understanding of type and the evolution of type, obviously in a European context, but... I learned so much about how, because you go to enough history classes and you realize, okay, we're not talking about black people ever that make you kind of ask other questions around why we're not talking about black people. So for me, type of group was culture shocky, but it was also really necessary because I learned a lot theoretically about making type, but I also was able to make amazing connections. I mean, Hannes, who was my lecturer, is one of my favorite people in the world. I was also able to, from that lecture or from that education experience, get in touch with people like my mentor DJR or my mentor Eben. Like those were the the entry points to get into a lot of where my life is right now with type. So I'm not mad at it, but it was it was really traumatizing. Yikes. I hate to hear that. I mean, but it sounds like you were able to at least extract some good yeah, things was, from it. it you know, tra- yeah. I mean, good traumatizing is weird, but what I mean is, <laughs> but I do mean that like it was. It's not traumatizing because anybody was out to get me or anything like that. I think it was traumatizing because everybody they've been building this curriculum, and I, I don't mean just type of group. I mean white people have been building type design curriculum for a hundred years now, and. This idea of, hey, you know, black people use language too. Like that question didn't come up. And I think that that's not the fault of the school. That's the fault of the society that we're in. And in a way, the education system can only ever be a strong reflection of the society that you're in. And I think that you Mm -hmm. can learn a lot about the society and the culture around type design by being part of its education system. So knowing all of this, and I guess also the fact that you really pull a lot of inspiration from the Caribbean as a whole. Like, how do you bring all of this to your work? Well, I mean, I I think that a lot of the work now for me is, I think that I've given up on making beautiful typefaces. And I don't mean aesthetically beautiful. I mean, the idea of aesthetically beautiful. I think that there are things that, I think that there are things that the dominant culture has taught us that type design needs to have, you know, like we need to have like, super tight joins and like a lot of the trendiness has kind of left my palette in terms of what I want to make. I want to make work that is so deeply accessible and utilitarian and basic because we're not in a space where if we're supporting Pan-African Latin languages that we have expressionism. Mm -hmm. The languages that support these, the sorry, the fonts that support these languages are what you would call the most white bread, boring, vanilla, Ariel Helvetica, type things and that's because most of the time you've needed to support those languages is because you're releasing it on an os or you're releasing it on a oh like there's like these contexts where you almost have to support everybody mm-hmm. and that's when it gets done but it's not getting done by the commercial types of the world or the sharp types of the world and again that's not a hit out against either christian or lucas who run you know commercial and sharp type respectively but that is a reflection of the industry that we're in mm-hmm. Let's talk about design objectives. That's something that you founded, co-founded, I should say, with one of our past guests, Aria Chandler, who we had on a couple of uh, months back. Talk to me about that. Oh, design objective um, started off as, uh, it was this plan that we had while I was working at a buff group. So I was working at a buff group at the time and myself, Aria Chandler, and another designer to whom I'm not related, but I'm good friends with named Melanie Archer. Okay. We started design objective because... There was this like this that same idea of not being a very nurturing culture or not having a very nurturing culture around design was there. 
So we didn't feel facilitated. We didn't feel like designers were encouraged to do anything other than make ads. And I think that for all of us, it was the same kind of deep desire to, you know, affect a positive change. So first design objective was helping designers be better, but not necessarily from the perspective of giving them lessons about gestalt or about color composition, because you can kind of make your way through that. But we wanted to give designers empowerment tools. So we wanted to show you how to make a contract. Here's how a negotiation should work. This is how you should probably price your work. So a lot of the efforts that we were putting in were around empowering designers to do their jobs better. Unfortunately, the pandemic kind of pushed because so much of design objective was meeting oriented and, and kind of socially kind of rooted. We lost a lot of our traction during the pandemic. And I think since then, we've really just slowed down the operation for as much as we're still doing things to connect design to people. I think that for each of us individually, we are we've kind of moved past design objective as a nonprofit that we were founding, that we were running ourselves. And I'm hoping that like there's a, a future evolution of that that can probably be, be in the same space that we started it in terms of supporting people and allowing them to really improve their practices and not, again, not from the perspective of the aesthetics of the work that they were making because Caribbean people are very creative and very talented. But I think that there was, there has been a culture of designers not being respected and then thus not respecting themselves that we start to design objectives to try to fix for. I don't think we've, we've met up in a couple of years now, even though Melanie, Melanie is also one of Unhue's showrunners, by the way. Oh. Yeah, so one of the... <laughs> I mean, you should probably interview her <laughs> off the record, but um, but yeah, she's one of one of the more influential designers, not just in our space, but in terms of the contemporary art world in the Caribbean as well. Okay, I mean, it's it's pretty clear to me that you like to stay busy, like you're doing a lot between yeah. the studio, the app, and other things. Like, what are you doing for you? Like, what are you doing for for self care with all of this? I'm fortunate to like. I used to party really hard when I was younger, so like. I would say like maybe between 17 and 25, I was just piles of drugs, just vats of booze. I'm saying that because I'm saying that like all of those things are now kind of boring to me. And um, mm-hmm. what I do now for fun is I have an orchid collection. So I take care of about a hundred plus orchids at my apartment. Wow. I can't believe I said that out loud. I do a lot of baking and cooking. Like I'm a, such a Saturday stay at home guy. Like, I am Mr. Yogurt on a Saturday morning. I am that's what I do. <laughs> I try my best to um, to just like enjoy the life that I, I built for myself because I think that there is so much in in the work that I'm doing now that can be in a way I'm busier than I've ever been. And if I don't make sure to separate myself, my whole life can be about the work that I'm doing. And I think that there was a period in time when I was really comfortable with that with making my life about what I'm doing. But I think that now I want to make my life about how much I'm enjoying my life. And I do enjoy my life in making the work that I'm doing. So there's that, but that's just part of my enjoyment. So I take care of my plants. I have a beautiful dog. His name is Baxter. And I spend as much time with him as I can. And yeah, I'm trying new fried chicken recipes. I'm trying new bread recipes. Okay. I wish I would say that like, you know, I'm like ice, like, you know, skating or like going surfing and stuff, but I'm not. I am averse to the water. I live in the Caribbean, but I'll go look at the beach. (laughs) <laughs> um, but I, I just feel like, yeah, a lot of a lot of what I'm doing for myself right now is stepping away from work being my everything, because it was my everything for a, a serious period of time. And I think that a lot of my substance abuse was driven by mitigating against that. So like work is taken over my life. I'm just doing some drugs so I can make it through. And now work is taken over my life. I need this weekend. Do you have like a dream project or something that you would love to do one day? I think that if I think about dream projects, I think about a lot of my my current drive is around the Caribbean and facilitating entrepreneurship and development in the Caribbean using the software that we made, but also the methodologies that we developed. So if I think of dream project, we are currently right now working with the government of Trinidad and Tobago to help with the same farming project. We're trying to like scale it across the nation. But we're also working with them on building software tools for financial inclusion. In my opinion, being able to help people on the ground in that kind of way from the space that I'm in, it couldn't get more dreamy than that. Who are some of the the mentors that have really kind of helped you out throughout your career? Definitely Gareth Jenkins and Alex Smales from Above Group. Huge influences. I think that they were the first people to kind of teach me that you can stand up for design and people won't hate you as much as you think. 
DJR, Dave Jonathan Ross, who is an American typeface designer, has been one of my rocks and one of the most encouraging designers that I've ever met. He was the first person that I sent my work who didn't just tell me something patronizing. So like I would share work with people and they'd be like, oh, this is amazing. And he was the first person to be like, hey, got your font. Here's a PDF with all of your mistakes. Mm. You can send it back to me if you like, you know, um, which I think like it was one of the best things for my career as a designer because I think that there is a lot of white guilt that can get in the way of productivity when it comes to giving people feedback on their work, especially like you see a young black guy making type and it's like, well, I don't want to break his spirit, but I actually kind of, I was far more concerned in positive feedback than I was in, you know, validation. And he was really good. I think he saw that and he was really good at that. And um, I think I feel the same way about Evan Sorkin, who is a designer who works for Darden Studio. And has also made um, the Meriwether font, which is pretty popular on the internet. But um, I think that those two typefaces designers have been really influential to me. There's also Hannes Famira and Just van Rossum, who um, who are German and Dutch type designers, respectively. And Just's work in programming really changed my outlook on whether or not programming had a place in my design practice. And Hannes's outlook on typeface design really kind of helped me and still helps me now when I'm making work remind myself that it's as good as you want it to be and you can make it better but the reality is that some of the decisions that you make will have to be personal ones and i think that in a world that has so much rigidity like typeface design those two people who are i would say typeface designers with a very strong traditional sense of output the ethos that they've been making their work with has been in a way radical and i am really inspired by that where do you see yourself in the next like five years? Like, what do you want like the next chapter of your legacy to be? Oof, legacy. Yikes. I think that in five years, I hope that Unqueue's infrastructure is more pervasive in the Caribbean and we're helping facilitate even more lives being built and transformed. I'm hoping that for my type design practice, that I'm able to find even more time to draw and even more time to produce. And I'm hoping that by in five years, my my first font with Darden Studio would have done relatively well because it would have been out for a few years. But I think that what I want for myself, I mean, and this is not just in five years, but also in five years, I would like the work that I'm making to see its potential through in terms of the impact that it can make in other people's lives. Well, just to kind of wrap things up here, where can our audience find out more information about you and your work and everything online? My best place to find me online is on Twitter, but I also have a website at aj.design. The Unqueue Studio has a website. It's unqueue.studio. Check that out for sure, especially if you're interested in tech in the Caribbean. And we have the Unqueue Marketplace, which is unqueue.app, which is what we use to help small businesses right now. If you can get on any of those platforms and you can't find me, then I just didn't want to be found. (laughs) All right. Sounds good. Uh, Jay Archer, I want to thank you just so much for coming on the show. Like I said, this has been a long time coming. I really wanted to have you on the show for a while and you didn't disappoint. I mean, I think, first of all, just hearing about your work ethic and, and how you've built Unqueue, I think is super inspiring, particularly kind of in this weird flux state we've all been in since, you know, the beginning of 2020. But I think also just the fact that you are, are someone who looked and sort of found a void in the market or a void in the world. And you've actively worked to kind of use your skills and your talents to kind of fix that. I think that's something that all of us can kind of walk away from learning just about you, but also just about the best ways that we can use the skills that we have to create a more equitable world. So thank you uh, so much for coming on the show. I appreciate it. Thank you, Maurice. And I'm, I'm really grateful as well for like your patience and like, you know, waiting as long as you have to get me on. But also I feel like, um, The kind of work that you're doing is really valuable, and I hope you get to keep it up. Big, big thanks to Ajay Archer, and of course, thanks to you for listening. You can find out more about Ajay and his work through the links in the show notes at revisionpath.com. Revision Path is brought to you by Lunch, a multidisciplinary creative studio in Atlanta, Georgia. This podcast is created, hosted, and produced by me, Maurice Cherry, with engineering and editing by R.J. Basilio. Our intro voiceover is by Music Man Dre, with intro and outro music by Yellow Speaker. Transcripts are provided by Brevity and Wit. This episode of Revision Path is also brought to you by Hover. 
Building your online brand has never been more important, and that begins with your domain name. Show the online community who you are and what you're passionate about with Hover. With over 400 plus domain extensions to choose from, including all the classics and fun niche extensions, Hover is the only domain provider I use and trust. Go to hover.com forward slash revision path and get 10% off your first purchase. So what did you think of the interview? Better yet, what do you think about the podcast overall? You know, we'd love to hear from you, so please don't be a stranger. Hit us up on social media. We're on Twitter. We're on Instagram. Just search for Revision Path, all one word. Or you can leave us a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts, on Amazon Music, or on Spotify. The more people you tell about the show, the bigger we become, and the further we can extend our reach to talk to black designers, developers, artists, and other digital creatives from all over the world. As always, thank you so much for listening, and we'll see you next time.